From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I'm well. There's nothing going terribly in my life. That's like really good, right? That's, yeah. that's like 10 out of 10. That, you can't get any better than that in Joelle's life. It's a very sad thing to say. I know. It's, it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> for you, but, it is. <laughs> but it's actually a good improvement on 2021. Well, it is. It is. Um, maybe, you know, I can aim for um, some, some good things happening instead of just absence of bad things. That might be nice. Yeah. 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 I did put my, um, my investment property on the market and we're having a home open this weekend. So fingers crossed. I don't think you're going to need too much luck with that with with the Perth market the way it is at the moment no I think we've probably got in like just in time yeah before yeah. it starts to turn just yeah. at a rate rise here in in, in Australia yeah um, but I don't think there'll be an issue well yeah we'll we'll see but hopefully we'll get a couple of offers yeah but we've got some good stuff coming up right like we're going to Melbourne in May and we're going to catch up with Alicia while we're over there yes you've never met face to face we haven't no uh, or you haven't been back to back either as I like to make um, our employees Listeners, do. Yeah, Jason um, takes great pleasure in standing me back to back with um, other people who come into the office and take photos to see who's shorter. Yeah, because Joel is um, tiny. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but it's, and it's good to see how tiny other people. So when Lee Lim out of our Singapore office who runs the Mentally Healthy Workplaces Asia podcast, she's very tiny, but not equally tiny. She was... Were we the same? Was she a little bit shorter than me? I think she had a centimeter on you. Above or below? Above. No. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. And she wasn't Polynesian the same. (laughs) (laughs) No, neither am I. (laughs) My father was born there. In Hawaii. No, where was it? Solomon Island. Vanuatu. Vanuatu. That's right. Yeah. But of um, missionary parents. So... No, yeah, I, I'm not Polynesian, <laughs> not even a little bit. That's no, all right. Well, let's not discuss your heritage in too much detail. We've got someone who's joining us from all the others on the other side of the world, yes. so we should probably get him on. Also, not Polynesian. Also, not Polynesian. I'm assuming. <laughs> no, but if you tune no. in on the video, he does have a glorious beard that we're he talking does about. Have off a glorious beard. Okay, so this person uh, has research topics that include well-being, emotions, stress, ethnicity the psychological contract, absence from work, motivation, work, non-work, and everyday work behavior. He is a professor of organizational psychology at Queen Mary University of London and co-founder and scientific director of the Center for Evidence-Based Management. Uh, Warm welcome to the podcast, Rob Briner. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to meet you. And uh, thanks for your patience. So (laughs) we went on a bit of a few tangents there. Uh, but yeah, really great to have you on. Actually, um, quick question I forgot to ask you off air. We've had um, Kevin Teo on before from Burbeck. Um, yes. Uh, you know Kevin? I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So do you also do some work at Burbeck University? I do. I have a, uh, a visiting professor appointment there because we just started a 
professional doctor in evidence-based HRM. So I'm being involved in designing that and I teach on that too. So yes, I do know him, yeah. Okay, so that's for listeners, just to let you know, if you're an org cycle working in the org cycle world, there is kind of like a seven degrees of Kevin Bacon um, and you can always find a connection yes. somehow. And this one, we've got you a can. one, de one degree connection here. So that's good. Yes. Um, so, Rob, what we like to ask all of our guests before we get into this serious business um, is what podcast do you like to listen to? Well, that's a good question. So I listen to quite a lot, but I would say the ones that have meant the most to me over the past couple of years with lockdown and everything are actually two comedy podcasts. One is called Pappy's Flatchair, which is uh, kind of silly and funny and based a lot on the relationships between the three people that do it. And they put out extra stuff during lockdown, which wouldn't say, I mean, it's a cliche to say it kept me sane. It didn't keep me sane necessarily. It wasn't insane, but uh, it was it was a great light relief throughout lockdown. Happy's flat chair. And the other one is called, it's a satirical podcast, sort of a political satirical podcast called The Bugle by uh, someone called Andy Zaltzman. So The Bugle and Papi's flat chair, I would say, you know, in the last couple of years have been my go-to every week or more than once a week in some cases, listening, yeah. Yeah, I did something similar. Um, just, yeah, very much focused on what's dumb and funny and ridiculous and is just going to make yeah. me laugh. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. want to have to think about serious things. I don't want to consume content that's bleak and, you know, an indictment on the world or anything like that. There's enough of that in reality yeah. at the moment, so I don't need that in my entertainment as well. Exactly. And as though I, you know, obsessively listen to quite a lot of podcasts and programs about things like COVID and pandemics and public health, I wouldn't really recommend them <laughs> in terms of, yeah, yeah. No, well, it's that. I mean, there's just maintaining your own mental health, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, now can you tell us, please, about your professional career? Yeah, so uh, you already mentioned, Jason already mentioned Birkbeck. So I did my first degree, well, I did my PhD, start start there, in a place called Sheffield in the UK, a place called, what's then called the Social Applied Psychology Unit, which is one of the kind of biggest centres in Europe for work psychology, organisational psychology. And then I went straight to Birkbeck as a sort of lecturer and stayed there actually for about 20 years, teaching and researching the areas you've already mentioned. And I spent about five years at University of Bath, and this is quite an interesting move for me from an organisational psychology department to a management school, teaching things like MBAs and kind of different subjects. Uh, and then the last five years, I've been at Queen Mary, again, in a business school, teaching more kind of organisational behaviour, HR kind of topics. So I had yeah, a series of academic careers. Around 10 years ago, <laughs> I was involved in setting up the Centre for Evidence-Based Management, and I also do a lot of work and training and presentations around evidence-based HR, evidence-based management, evidence-based practice in organizational psychology and psychological health and well-being and stuff like that. So I'm interested in the MBA um, aspect of, of that because um, I think some of the um, observations that I've heard from people about MBA curriculum in particular is that it isn't necessarily reflective of um, current um sort of research findings um, yeah. around organizational behavior so um how, yes. how have you gone with that have you been able to sort of modify yeah. the curriculum uh, i've tried uh <laughs> i think that's probably reasonable criticism so one thing about mbas is a very unusual kind of degree because i think they take people who either are managers or who are aspiring managers or executives and it they work them very very hard 
in my experience of working MBAs. But I think you're right. In general, a lot of the material is it's challenging in it. There's a lot of it. It's not challenging in that it really develops, I would say, much critical thinking. These programs are not really designed to do that. They're quite general, as you know, management programs. So they dip in, you know, a week on marketing, a week on HR, a week on strategy. So they dip in and out of things in a very intense way and give people, I guess, a broad background. But yes, I think they don't necessarily represent the most up-to-date or recent or give a good overview of the scientific evidence in the particular fields they're studying. Some may more than others. And the reason I think they don't is because some people argue that MBAs and indeed some other kinds of education fall into a category of what's called edutainment, where to cross between entertainment and education, as, as the name implies. And so actually what students and anyone who's done any teaching knows this, what students, most students like is something that's interesting and fun easy to grasp. What they don't like, or some do, is very challenging, difficult, ambiguous, confusing stuff, which often is what science and critical thinking is all about. So there's this tension between, is it more about education or entertainment or some hybrid? And actually, what are we really preparing for anyway? But yeah, I tend to agree they don't, they're not designed to, I guess, brief people in the best available evidence around management, no. Yeah, and then you get graduates coming out and thinking we can use the MBTI to fix all of our personal yeah. problems yeah. or why don't we just start yeah. with why yeah yeah like, yeah yeah <laughs> exactly yeah exactly yeah and i think it's also because you know they are and this is not i don't think it's necessarily anyone's fault it's not university's fault it's not students fault when it comes to management and other fields as you know there's lots of fads and fashions and there are gurus and i think uh the, the management they're very persuasive you know as you know if you go onto amazon or youtube and you look for people who've got very strong views about and will give you the answer to everything and they've got this new idea. It's very persuasive. And often I think students are looking for that. And when you tell them, well, actually, it isn't that simple. It's not that straightforward. This new idea maybe isn't such a good idea anyway and there's much evidence for it. They're a bit shocked because they've heard that Google do it or whatever. So they're a bit amazed that you're sort of challenging this. And also they may be right in a way. You know, to get on, some people argue in the corporate world, you have to kind of ride these fads and fashions and use them to your advantage in a career sense. It may not help the organization or the business much, but it may help you get on and progress in your career. So it's, again, it's one of those things that is nobody's fault. It's just the MBA fits in those between those three different things, I think. Yeah, we definitely see the trend. So it was growth mindset. I think the new hotness is psychological safety at the moment from what, mm -hmm. what we've seen around the place. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And with all these things, I mean, maybe we'll talk about it a bit later, but with all these ideas, or many of them, there's often nothing intrinsically completely wrong about it, with it, but it, it tends to be a lot of overclaiming, and it tends to be seen as a panacea, and if you just do this one thing, everything's going to be wonderful, whatever it is, whether it's growth mindset, whatever it is. And of course, when you dig into it, it it's, it's okay, it's a bit more complicated than that, but yeah, sometimes people don't want to hear that, they want to hear this is the answer, this is the solution. Mm, absolutely. So um, I guess, you know, with our podcast, we really are focusing on systemic approaches to workplace yeah. mental health. Uh, and over the past year, we've seen many large organizations announcing different policies and strategies to support employee mm. mental health, along with regulatory changes, particularly here in Australia, and then internationally yeah. with the release of things like ISO 45003. Um, what are your thoughts about it, all the increasing focus on workplace mental health to start with? Okay, so I think obviously in general, it's a bit hard to argue like motherhood and apple pie. 
it's hard to argue the idea that it's important we should think about people's mental health at work, sure. However, my understanding is, if you look at some of the evidence, it's not clear to me that mental health is generally negatively impacted by work. In fact, it's generally positively impacted by work compared to not working, for example. So it's quite a complicated arena. And also, my understanding is it's not clear that there's this uh, claimed huge decline or, or worsening of mental health problems in relation to, to work in particular. So you're going into a context where, in general, this thing you're trying to fix is probably beneficial on the whole for people's mental health. And you go into a context where people's mental health may not be getting any worse. And of course, as we know as well, it seems to be the case that actually the strongest determinants of people's mental health have nothing to do with work. The things outside work, they could be genetic things, they could be family background, they could be history. So all those things make it, make it rather complicated to intervene in. Because often I think, again, like lots of not very good interventions or, or good approaches, people will assume a problem without trying to identify it or measure it or assess it and throw in solutions which are then not evaluated. And even if they were, they're unlikely to be effective because it wasn't clear what the problem was in the first place. So it's a, it's a potentially important area, but one that I think is quite complicated. And my sense is, and you may have seen this as well, the approaches to it lack nuance. They lack critical thinking. They lack uh, careful specification of what the problems and issues are. And one of the most striking examples, I've, I've done this a few times, was at a mental health uh, conference. And most of the people there were either in occupational health or, or HR, organisational psychology, and they're responsible for dealing with mental health in the workplace. But just as a starting point, I said, okay, talk to the person next to you and define what you mean by mental health. And again, that was... For most people, my sense is most people, that was a complete stumbling block. And again, the question is then how can you manage or intervene or do something you can't even begin to define what it is you're trying to do? So it's, it's a very challenging area, I think a very difficult area. Yeah, and I guess um, uh, some good comparisons could be made with uh, physical health in the workplace. You know, how much of someone yeah. in someone's physical health is actually determined yes. by the workplace um, versus genetics or lifestyle choices sure. and that yes. sort of thing outside of work. That's right. And that's where I think the idea of, uh, you know, psychosocial hazards, I believe it's come in to Australia even more in the last year, quite recently, I believe. But the idea that there's a sort of equivalence between physical hazards at work and psychosocial hazards, I think has been very problematic. So again, go back to physical labor, the idea of chemicals or machineries or slips or trips or asbestos, the links between those physical hazards and physical health are relatively direct and straightforward and indeed observable in many cases. The links between psychosocial hazards and psychological injury, if you like, are much more difficult to establish. It doesn't mean they don't happen, but I think there's a danger in taking the model that was developed for physical harms and physical hazards and applying it, just moving it over to psychological hazards and harms. And I think it doesn't, doesn't work very well in my view. Yeah, we, we would argue that the, the tools that exist to measure the harm caused by a psychosocial hazard exposure are not fit for purpose. And we've spoken about that at length on the podcast previously. So we're not going to bore our mm. listeners with that one again. We might create a link to that previous podcast elsewhere. Um, but Joelle, I think you were going to say something as well at that point. Yeah. Was I? Oh, well, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> no, but um, I guess, you know, the, we need to think about what is the employer's role um, in mental health as in physical health mm. and uh, if you think 
purely from a legal perspective and the same is in the UK as in Australia, the, the employer's legal responsibility is to make sure they've got a work environment that doesn't harm people. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, they, they're not responsible for how people are eating or how active they are at work or, or whatnot, um, but they need to make sure that the environmental conditions don't harm people. And so, I, yeah. um, you know, when it comes to psychosocial hazards, they just need to make sure that the conditions of work aren't harming people. And like you say, in most instances, if work is designed well, it will have a positive impact on people's health yeah. and it won't harm people. But that's the responsibility, yeah. you know, fruit bowls, yoga, EAP, mental health first aid. It's not the employer's responsibility. They're kind of like nice things to do that have mm. kind of warm and fuzzy outcomes. Yeah. Um, oh, now Joelle wants to say something. <laughs> Please, Joelle. Um, yeah. So I guess um, the other thing to point out is I think that, you know, the people's experience at work interacts with what's happening outside of work. And, oh, yeah. you know, we've only got, so much capacity to um to deal with stress whatever the source of it happens to be um mm. and so you know if things outside work are going smoothly then we've potentially got greater capacity to deal with demands um from work um but then you know when um when the balance shifts and we've got more demands outside of work then our capacity to actually deal with with work demands is diminished um, and then there's sort of that that greater capacity for harm to occur. Sure, and I it's quite interesting. I sense it's even more complicated than that because I think there's some instances where people, even if have a, quite a stressful, demanding, say, home life, uh, they even if work's also demanding, they welcome being at work because there's no kids. People generally respect them. They've got structure and order. They feel competent. Whereas often, maybe for example, as a parent or a carer, you don't feel any of those things. So oddly, I think work can also have a sort of buffering effect in that sense. Uh, so I guess the stress model would be like you're filling up this bucket of stress and then it spills over. And there's also a compensation model as well, where having high demands outside work may, may mean even quite a difficult and demanding workplace is compensating for that stuff outside. So yeah, where you're, where you're able to be competent um, yes. in, in your yes. work and where you're treated with yeah. respect and all of that exactly. sort of thing yeah. and yes exactly. yeah. certainly you know people maybe with anxiety disorders or those types of things can actually find work very beneficial because it takes their mind away yeah. from the the sort of anxious ruminations yeah. and all of that kind sure. of thing yeah, yeah. Um, but all of that is very much dependent on the the conditions of the workplace as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I guess that's something that we've spoken about at length on the podcast as well I mean you know, stresses and um, mental illness kind of predisposition, if you like, or, you know, um, mm. impacts on mental health can occur in a range of ways. It could be individual or genetic. It could be workplace. It could be macro factors like there's a global pandemic and, you know, job insecurity yeah. because of economic conditions. Um, yeah. Now, the employer can't can, control the macro factors. No. They can't change the individual factors. The only thing yeah. they can impact is actually the work factors. So, yeah. And I think, again, and this raises a broader point, I think, around quite a lot of workplace uh, kind of behaviour and other sorts of interventions is obviously you can argue what the employer has a legal or moral responsibility for, but also there may be just limits to what they can just do. Uh, in other words, if someone, say, has a predisposition, let's say an anxiety disorder, it may be really limited what an employer, even a, the best employer in the world can do to actually alleviate or help. And actually, you could argue whether they're responsible for it or not. And I think it, this reminds me a lot as well of things like attempts to reduce unconscious bias at work, where organisations are trying to, you know, quite rightly in some ways, of course, address biases. 
but actually a lot of the causes of those biases are nothing to do with the workplace, nothing to do with the organisation, are deeply embedded in society and in structures outside the workplace, and actually changing people's unconscious biases is difficult. And even if you do, it doesn't mean that it shapes behaviour. So I think with mental health and other things around work, I think there is a, if you like, a, a technical limit to how much you can really shape these things. It's probably easier to make them worse in some ways, but in order to actually kind of improve things, there really are limits there to what you can do. And I think for me, one way of approach making this a little more effective is for organisations to be a little clear about, well, what can we actually do? What can we shift and what can't we shift? So, for example, if you look at some surveys, I'm sure you've come across this a thousand times, some surveys and measures of people's psychological well-being, you know, top management team might look at them and go, oh, my God, this is terrible. What can we do? But actually, maybe 95% of it is nothing to do with the workplace. So the answer to what you can do is, well, not much. It's not, a, in a sense, a problem that's fixable by you as, as a senior management team or an organisation. Maybe there's other stuff you can do, but this is maybe something you can't do much about. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess, um, you know, with the pandemic on the back of that, we've seen a huge interest in uh, workplace mental health, right? And there's mm. like um, so many different activities happening in this space at the moment as well. Um, so do you think that this increased interest in workplace mental health is, you know, a sign of the times um, uh, and I guess directly related to yeah. the pandemic? Or do you think it's got some legs in it? Do you think there's going to be increased focus? Yeah. In the area? I think these things go through, uh, so I don't know how many years ago, 30 years ago or so, I was studying stress at work. Now, I happen to think stress is a really meaningless concept and a very unhelpful idea. And I think a lot of the claims made about stress at work, what it is, what it does, are hugely exaggerated if you dig deep into what the available, the best available evidence. However, having said all that, I can remember that, that you know, before stress came along, which was in the, the 70s, and I've looked at this historically, of course, the big thing was job satisfaction. Job satisfaction increases satisfaction. The tablet stopped the idea of well-designed jobs. You know, this is 70-year-old stuff now. Nothing wrong with it necessarily, but it's, it's historic now. And then there's a really massive focus on stress. I would say from the mid-70s, uh, probably to the early 2000s, certainly in the UK, like everything was about stress. Health and safety executive in the UK, uh, you know, stress management standards, lots of stuff coming out, huge number of... Um, courses, programs, everybody was sent on stress management courses. And then to me, that kind of diminished a bit. And it, again, went out of fashion, fundamentally, I think. And what came in then, I think, was a kind of happiness agenda. So things like emotional intelligence, happiness, emotional labor, the idea of emotional purpose at work. And then there's a really big focus on making people happy. And the idea works should make you happy. And what's interesting is almost as though we can't hold these negative and positive thing, aspects of well-being together that it goes up and down from satisfaction to stress to happiness. And I think what's happening now, back to your question, Jason, the think is recycling back now to focusing again on the negative stuff. So I think it's not, uh, in a sense, it's not new. It's got slightly different labels, maybe slightly different focus. But I think I, I see sort of cycles in this. Instead of people saying, actually, at work, there's a lot of positive aspects of psychological well-being, a lot of negative aspects of psychological well-being, and they're going on together, and they're going on the whole time. You tend to get this focus on one or the other. So I think that I think that's kind of where we are. And it could also be because, I don't know if you do the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic uh, had 
my understanding is quite mixed effects in general, lockdown on people's mental health. Um, but it could be that I think for those of are lucky enough to be able to work from home, perhaps it made us you know reevaluate a bit and think about work and what work is like. And for many people, I think who had you know nice houses with gardens and space, working from home was so like, wow, this is like I'm in heaven, you know, like don't have all the nonsense at work. I don't have to drink the horrible coffee at work, I don't have the commute, I don't have. So in a sense, what people are appreciating, I think, is not uh, that work was easier. It's just that the it removes a lot of, for some people, the negative stuff about work. So it kind of made them maybe reflect a bit. And the idea of going back, for some people, I think, seems or has seemed quite difficult compared to the, the sort of initial, wow, isn't it nice being at home, you know, in my garden, working on my laptop, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think it probably, maybe it's made people reflect on that a little bit more, yes. Yeah, and I've seen myself just, um, you know, perusing LinkedIn uh, that I probably spend too much time doing. Um, but, you know, people have gone from what, what I've seen, people who are commenting on this have gone from a state of being a bit anxious about going back to the workplace. Mm. And when they go back, they're like, oh, these are all the things that I used to enjoy about work. You know, that yeah. camaraderie, yeah. banter, the yeah. horrible coffee, but I could have a conversation with someone while I'm making exactly, coffee, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. They're very, and, and they're quite, uh, they're quite intangible. I think those things and a lot of those things we like about work are not are not work directly. Mm-hmm. So that when people get used to the idea of my my job is just to do my tasks and get them done, uh, and you, you you take people out of the workplace, that's what they focus on. Uh, I think the idea that you can go into work and and have a chat and have some banter or have a really good conversation with someone about. Something has nothing to do with work, so it doesn't feel it isn't work technically, but it is part of work. And of course, I think we've maybe forgot a bit that work is about more than just working. And I think that is kind of maybe what people are coming back to a bit now. And I know for me, yeah. So in the last yeah couple of months, I've had you know uh, meetings, conferences, face to face. I'm doing one tomorrow in Liverpool, and it's like yes, I'm still really enjoying that sense of being in a room. With other people and quite intangible there's something about it it's sort of very i don't know cliche but kind of life affirming or exciting in a way that you know doing a, a big conference presentation online it's just and teaching in fact it just leaves a void it doesn't yeah it's like you're shouting into a void and so into non-interactive i guess yeah absolutely yeah i wonder um if we're maybe having a bit of a honeymoon period with um with being back mm. in the office and then you we know never, we never left. No, we didn't. I'm talking <laughs> the, the royal we, not the yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the UNI world. we. Yeah. Um yeah. you know that yeah, suddenly yeah. we we've got all of these social connections happening again. So we're getting all of those um yeah. you know, aspects of our brain chemistry firing um and then you know i wish tim would just clean up his dishes once we return to the drudgery yeah yeah, yeah, and sort of get get over the novelty (laughs) after being in isolation for so long whether um whether there'll be a shift again i think i think it's a kind of honeymoon period something i've noticed very anecdotally so i i sometimes go to gyms and wander around an area and i call the city which is a financial district and one thing very notable a few months ago even maybe a little bit longer when people started drifting back a bit I noticed that at lunchtime, uh, the pubs and the restaurants were absolutely packed in a way that, and it wasn't a Friday, you might expect on a Friday, but my, and my understanding is people go into the office to socialise. So they're working at home, sort of complete flip, 
and they were going in the office just just for this point to actually socialize and to be with people and do other things so i think there's a kind of honeymoon period i think for a lot of individuals and for organizations there's going to be this period of adjustment how do we get you know the best of working from around the best of being in the office because frankly historically you know a lot of office experiences apart from the social bits have not been great you know most of us don't love our offices we don't particularly i'm guessing really want to be there we're there because we need to do our work and maybe organizations have a way to go to think well how why would people want to come here why would they want to hang around and, and do their work here rather than somewhere else or do it online what, what's the difference how can we design or help engineer that to make to make it good to make it something people where people want to be and that's you know that that question was going on a little bit before around workplace design and employee experience but i think it's really increased the focus on that mm. yeah um and it it all goes back to that i guess sort of core principle that good work is good for you um you know and it's very much about designing that um experience of work that leverages the positive aspects of work and sort of dampens or or diminishes the aspects of work that can be harmful yeah i think that's sort of the way you know finding the right balance um but yeah i guess with the um that increasing emphasis on workplace mental health there's obviously lots of people out there selling lots of things yes indeed doing their best to sell things anyway um and uh you know lots of shiny marketing um can be mm. you know attractive but not necessarily um good quality in terms of of what it can deliver um in your view how can decision makers in organizations be sure that they're making good choices um when yeah. they're actually looking for um these types of um services yeah well, the first thing I'll say is uh, you shouldn't be looking for those kind of services. Sur sur services? You shouldn't be looking for those kind of services unless you know what the problem or opportunity is. So a basic principle of evidence-based practice, one thing I'm interested in, is you, don't, you do not look for solutions or answers or interventions. That's the last thing you do. The first thing you do is say, what is going on? What's the issue or problem we've got? Now, it could be, I've got quite into this idea of theatre and HR theatre recently, and the idea that in different contexts, individuals and organisations do stuff to give the appearance that they're doing something. And I think in mental health, as a good example, as diversity and inclusion and other fields where organisations may, back to your point, choose interventions, choose things, but more because they want to be seen to be doing something. So if you just want to be seen to be doing something, that's fine randomly choose things that your mates are doing or you think are cool fine if you actually want to make a difference which is a different kind of question you need to say start with this analysis and what i as i said before what i don't see much of is a really careful for want of a better term diagnostic what actually are the mental health well-being issues problems opportunities amongst our employees and that has to be the starting point and that in a way is well, it is the hard bit. It's the hard bit. The easy bit is buying services. That's easy. Throw money, get stuff. It's easy. Saying what is actually going on here and what might the causes of this be and what could potential solutions be, that's the really difficult. So I think that to me is the, the one, I'm not saying it's the only, but it's almost the one and only thing that, that will make a difference is saying what is actually going on here. And, and you're right. I think there are 
I guess people selling these products and services know that if they promote them enough, if people hear about them enough, people will just buy them because they've got a dim sense that something is wrong. We need to do something. Maybe there's a, an anecdote, an example of one person who maybe, you know, developed very severe depression and there was a sort of serious consequence of that or something. And that is the problem. And suddenly let's get all this stuff because it could happen again with very little analysis, I guess. So, yeah, and it's very, it's very, I sometimes call it the road to hell paved with good intention problems. And there are some areas where people, managers, organizations feel bad. Another one, again, is diversity and inclusion, where they feel bad that bad stuff is going on in the organization. They don't want to find out what it is. So rather than doing that, they get lots of good intentions. A bit like the classic stories of, I know, in the sort of, where it still happens, but the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you see pictures of maybe people in Africa who are starving. All the answer is, let's give them some food. Let's send food to them. Of course, that is not an answer because you haven't understood the problem. You see something on your TV screen and, and think you've seen the problem. That isn't the problem. That's a sort of very surface level, uh, I guess, surface level symptom of a much, much more important problem. So again, to me, it's that sense of people feel bad, they need to do something, and they're just quite happy to throw stuff at it. Uh, and again, I don't, you've probably seen this as well, but I've, I've heard in the case of well-being and diversity inclusion and some other fields as well, if you listen to what all big organizations say they're doing, I've sat through quite a lot of these presentations to hear whatever's occupational health, a director of HR, someone talking about it. What is interesting is that all of the big organizations are doing lots and lots and lots of things. They've got a list, tick, 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 of all the stuff they're doing, which is kind of interesting. The second thing that's really striking is all these organizations are doing exactly the same things for unclear reasons. Uh, the third thing is they almost never appear to be evaluated. And finally, of course, there's never any analysis at the beginning to say why we're doing this stuff. So I think there's just some fields that attract this extra, extra, extra activity and very little analysis, partly because of this, I guess, a moral sense that we're, we're mm. doing something wrong to our people. We need to do something. It's urgent. We must do something. So I think that, yeah, I think maybe mental health is one of those fields. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the, the patterns that we observe is that the first step for lots of organizations tends to be, um, you know, we'll, um, give people a meditation app and we'll, you know, give yeah. them some resilience training or, you know, what would, I guess, typically be classified under employee benefits, you know, an employee assistance yeah. program and a gym membership and all of those types of things so that people feel like we're doing yes, things exactly. to support them. Um, and as you already um, mentioned, mental health first aid training, you know, another great. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas I think, you know, what we try to talk about, um, on the podcast and, and, you know, with our clients is actually, well, let's look upstream, you know, let's look at things like what's your performance appraisal system look like and how does that actually, you know, link into other um, aspects of people's lives, you know, um, how does your, yeah, how does your onboarding system actually get people to a point where they understand what, you know, um, how to be successful in this organisation and how can I actually mm. perform to the best of my ability um, using my strengths within this organization. So, you know, it's really talking about um, 
more about the core structures that enable performance within an organization rather than that sort of round the edges stuff that just, um, you know, might help um, increase people's buffer, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the idea of seeing something a bit more systemic, uh, and these are things that cause, let's say, maybe not mental health, the capital M and H, but maybe there's a mood and affect and other aspects of psychological well-being. If you look at the things about work that might affect that, I think that's uh, probably a more important starting point. But, but even more important starting point is what is going on here? Why do yeah. things happen anyway? Um, and I think one concept I find useful, and I've studied a little bit in the past, is a psychological contract. And if this is something you've come across, it's just the idea that we have an implicit and, and I guess dynamic understanding of what we, what we want to give and do at work and what we expect back in return. It seems to me that's quite a good way of thinking about a lot of the reasons people either experience quite strong negative emotions or experience feelings of sort of contentment and maybe feelings of things like flourishing and feel like they're really getting somewhere. It's this kind of contract that people have. And it seems to me a lot of well-being interventions could stand back and look at, as you described, kind of almost do an audit of different practices, different HR practices in particular, and things like job design, saying, how is this impacting on people's cycles of contract? What are they giving? What are they getting back? Are they perceiving kind of unfairness? They're perceiving it as unequal. And I think certainly, I think a lot of the times people are often quite rightly sceptical about some of these things like, you know, relaxation and resilience training and mental health first aid. They're sceptical because they experience being treated unfairly. As in, you're asking me to do all this stuff at work and you're not giving me the resources or expect me to go the extra mile, as it were, uh, but you're not being flexible back in return and helping me do something. So they, they're experiencing unfairness and then they're being told to use a resilience app or, or something. Like, and they, kind of, they experience this as a great incongruity. You know, if you want to help me, make the workplace you know, fair and work for me. And then we, you know, and then we can talk about this other stuff. So the sort of, I think people have a sense of priorities about this as well, that some things, yes, if everything else is is ordered and in place and workplace seems fair, you're giving what you want, you're getting back what you think is fair, then maybe, and there's still some issues and problems, then maybe you have to look at other stuff. But yeah, it tends to be put in place first rather than looking at what might be some of the underlying issues. Yeah, and we were talking about psychological contract a little bit with um, Mark Mark Layson when we were talking about moral injury, yeah. um, and oh, you yeah, know yeah. his his yeah. view, yeah, very strongly was well, you know, and it was sort of to do with first responders. Well, they come to work mm-hmm. expecting to deal with trauma, you know, yes. and that's sort of part of the job. What they don't expect is to come to work and have their employer betray them in all of these different exactly yes. tiny tiny little ways that just erode away yeah. at your sense of self worth and um, efficacy and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think people in many, I guess, fields experience that idea of feeling they've been taken on for one reason and employed for one reason. And then it turns out that they're not being treated at all in the way they were led to believe they were going to be treated. And what they actually do is very different from what they felt it was being promised to them. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of incongruity there sometimes. Yeah. Um, so like we talked about, there's lots of different programs and, uh, I've seen it before at conferences, right. Where, you know, companies mm. will give up and give a case study of what they're doing. And it's basically a checklist yeah. of what are all the popular things that like EAP, mental yeah. health, first aid, all the rest. And 
like you say, there's really little evidence um, of any measurement beforehand or any sort of evaluation to determine, is this actually something that is needed for a, what, what is the problem and is this going to fix it? And then evaluating yeah. whether it has actually fixed yes. the problem. A lot of the evaluation for these sort of things seem to stem around what is engagement like. And we know yes. even despite EAP having, you know, really bad utilization rates typically of, you know, less than 5% mm. as an industry and probably worse with uh, mindfulness apps and that sort of thing. They're like, oh, well, that's successful. <laughs> but again, yeah. not understanding what is the problem? What is it actually fixed? It's more yeah. are people engaging with this once a month. Is that is that then valuable? But anyway, yeah. um, you talked a bit about that importance of evaluating or trying to assess what is the problem um, mm. before launching into something um, but, or before purchasing solutions. Mm. Um, but I guess in your own words, what, what does the process of evidence-based diagnosis actually look like? Yeah, well, I think uh, I think normally what my sense is what might happen is people, and again, I'm going to use the word problem, but also you can apply this equally for the concept of opportunities. So it's not just about removing problems or reducing problems. It could be about capitalizing opportunities. But I talk mostly about problems just because it makes it a bit easier. So typically, I think people would, would start with a hunch, an observation, a sense, some piece of data that tells them something is up, something is wrong, something is not, you know, working or, or, or going wrong in some sort of way. And then the first step would be to actually ask a whole series of questions to try and find out what, what might be happening. And evidence-based practice in general has a number of key features, which is different. So we all use evidence. And of course, sometimes people think, well, I use evidence, so that's evidence-based practice. Well, not really, it isn't. Evidence-based practice, I think, has three distinctive features from the way we normally use evidence. And again, you'd be interested to know if you've ever seen this in the organisations you work with. So the first, first thing is the general approach. And the general approach is what people describe as conscientious, explicit, judicious. So conscious means you really try to gather evidence. Obviously, judicious means you judge the quality. And explicit means you write it down, you codify it, you share it with other people. The first difference is this general approach. The second difference is using multiple sources of data. And again, I, this is something I don't see very often. So people might say, use a lot of analytics in the organization, or they may find some scientific articles, but they don't often put those together and look at other sources of evidence as well. So using multiple sources of evidence is the second difference, I think. The third difference, I think, is it's taking a structured and stepped approach. In general, it seems to me people don't like being guided about how to make decisions. So if you give people structures and guidelines, people just want to make decisions in their own way, which I get, and I, and I do as well. But it seems to me if you're in an organisation, if you're spending money, if you're dealing with important problems, then you should try and follow a more systematic approach rather than just going on hunches and so on. So there are three differences. It's general approach. It is, as it is using multiple sources of evidence and it's taking a structured approach. So for example, if there's, if there's an issue around like, some mental health problems, you would start asking questions, well, what do we really know from our expertise as practitioners is going on? And ask a series of questions. Then you might ask questions about uh, organizational data. If we've got any data in the organization that tells about some mental health problem, what might be causing it? Then we might talk to stakeholders. What do unions or senior managers or employees or even Employees' families think about this particular issue, problem, if there is one. And then also look at the scientific evidence. Now, what is known in the scientific evidence about 
the cause of this issue or how we can understand it. So the first bit would just be really trying to say what is going on, what is the problem or issue, how big is it, how small is it, where is it, what do different stakeholders think, what do we think as, as expertise, and you'd always ask the question how relevant and how trustworthy is the information you've got, paying mu much more attention to the more trustworthy evidence and kind of ignoring more or less the less trustworthy stuff. And you do that for the problem. And then if you thought there was one or two, whatever it was, then you do exactly the same thing for solution. Multiple sources of evidence go through a series of steps. So essentially, evidence-based practice just means making a more informed decision, doing it in a, in a more structured way, being aware of the limitations of the data and evidence you've got. And that's something I see people do bits of that, but I rarely see people do all of that. I don't know what, what your experience has been. Yeah, that's a that's a really great summary there, I think, Rob. And um, I think I can directly relate that to say um, my role straight out of org psych masters was, uh, okay. as a lot of org psych masters do, in like a selection assessment role. Uh, yes. So pre-employment screening around personality abilities testing that sort of thing, um, and that's one piece of information in a whole kind of recruitment process. Yeah. So you also have interview. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so interview reference checks, you have, um, you know, it might be practical type of assessments to assess skill levels, that sort of, you have all these pieces of information and, you know, you, you make your judgment based on all that information. Whereas uh, mm. I found, despite even saying to clients, you know, reminding them again and again, use all the information, don't rule them out because, you know, um, you know, their conscientiousness is low on this particular scale. Um, mm. don't rule them out on that one piece of evidence if everything else is saying hey this person's a stellar high performer who puts in a lot of effort um so yeah yeah so i'm just thinking that that was just going through yeah, so, back in my mind yeah, it's yeah. Funny, that's a really good analogy and i've never thought of that before there you so go and you're from the org suck field mate you should know that. <laughs> i know i know it never, never dawned on me thank you uh and i think one of the reasons it's quite relatable i guess is that well you would hope people are making selection decisions probably have some awareness that you've got all these multiple sources of information they're probably where some are more or less relevant they're probably where some are more or less trustworthy so the principles actually are in there aren't they same mm. the same principles so yeah i will i will steal that thank you very much you're very welcome um just uh some reference or royalties yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that's good mate Banshee um, 22 uh, yeah okay so i mean i think i've views are aligned with yours there that that you know doing that really good quality um diagnosis up front and you know um with particular emphasis on you know consulting with with the workforce about you know what their experience of work is like and yeah. and what are the you know are there work factors that are actually creating um challenge or or distress for them and, and what are they and you know yeah. are there clusters of people who are having the same issues with the same aspect of work or the the same structures of work or whatever that might be um, so, you know, we certainly advocate for that type of an approach as well. Um, that's I just want to interrupt there. So, so that's great. But I don't know if you find this, but my sense is that sometimes if you want to take that approach, of course, that's great. But the problem or challenge might be for you is that there's lots of other people in the same world who are quite happy just to sell people a thing. Oh, yeah. And, and and I've heard this quite a lot actually from organizational psychologists but, and other people as well who say other consultants or people in you know small businesses, small, yeah, small consultancies, who say that's how I would like to work with my clients. But some clients just want the thing. 
And if you say, well, can't we find out what the issue is? Sometimes they will, but often they're saying, look, can you give me these things or not? And if you can't give me these things, there's a hundred people I can just call and we can get, we can get the mindfulness app, you know, up and running in a week. We can do mental health first aid training next month. So what, yeah. So I'm just, it's, it's always interesting. This is a real challenge about if you, as a practitioner, want to practice in an evidence-based way, it's, it's can be really challenging because partly because the clients don't want it, partly because there's plenty of other people happy just to sell people the thing. And that's probably why it's good to buy from a registered psychologist who is bound by a code of ethics. <laughs> yeah. We would hope that you would hope that would help. Yeah. Yeah, not, Sorry, a, not, not a guarantee. Not a guarantee, but no. uh, it, it, it increases your probability. It does, bit, it yeah. does, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's what do you want to do with your money? Do you want to actually, you know, have it um, give you a return or do you want to just yeah. spend it for the sake of show? Um, so I guess, you know, from that perspective, we'll, you know, look at different outcomes um, mm. that we can also measure, you know, things like absenteeism and turnover and, you know, those types of things. Um, and, yeah, then you can sort of do a pre and post um, types of assessments using existing organisational data as well as those yeah. sort of employee um, yeah. consultation and, you know, other different sources of data that, that you collect within your organisation. Um, I think what we see a lot of, and particularly with organisations who have very mature safety management systems is that they will want to just sort of take the, you know, the top eight psychosocial hazards from, you know, from the standard or whatever it might be and add them to the risk register and sort of do a top down. Oh, is it, you know, what's the likelihood and what's the consequence and, you know, we'll do this policy and we'll have this disciplinary consequence attached and, you know, that'll do it. Um, Obviously, that's a much easier process for them to follow as opposed to actually doing that sort of more um, in-depth diagnostic that we were talking about there. What would you say would be the benefits for them to, to do that more um, in-depth process rather than that, that sort of top-down um, approach? Uh, I think partly, so I think as I said before, I think the, the taking uh, physical health and safety stuff or models and directly applying, or as you say, sticking on psychosocial hazards to it, I think has problems. Uh, and I, I suppose, would ask or, or would suggest that what's really important is to actually look at the causal mechanisms that you're interested in. So say it's something like job autonomy or workload or role ambiguity, whatever. whatever. What, is it, what are the actual causal mechanisms by which these features to the work will lead to particular kinds of outcomes. And if you can't specify those, then it gets pretty hard to take that sort of health and sort of physical psychosocial hazard approach. If you can do that, fine. If you can't, then you're a bit stuck and you're kind of guessing, maybe based on scientific evidence or something, else, what in principle might sort of make a difference. Um, so I think, it, I think it's quite hard. So I think the alternative, again, is, is to go back and, and look at as you, as, you, as you said, actually, look at sort of some of the systems and processes already in place. How are they potentially harming or helping people already? And are there any particular hotspots in the sense of things where areas, roles, work characteristics, where things seem to be going particularly wrong? And I think, again, I was sort of, sometimes people want to look at everything. And I think it's much better to try and identify where there might be quite tangible sorts of issues and problems. 
So whatever whatever they might be, which might not be picked up so well, this kind of psychosocial hazard type bolted on set of measures. I mean, for example, I'll give you an example of this. I think it's really interesting. Is um, job autonomy. Now, of course, broadly speaking, you could say if people have more control at work, it's a good thing. However, my understanding of the best available evidence around this is there's a lot of individual differences. I mean, a lot. Such that for some people, uh, having a lot of control over the way they do their job is not actually particularly beneficial. And for others, it really is. So you get into this more fine-grained thing about what do people want. Now, obviously, it, it's difficult to individualize every single job and design individual job characters for every single person. But going back to the psychological contract, the idea of idiosyncratic deals or ideals suggests that maybe, and things concepts like job crafting, suggest there's something in that. So rather than saying we want to change these features of all jobs so people have more control and more of this and less of that, actually, maybe we need to look a little bit more, although it's more time on the level of the individual. So it's kind of back to the cycle of contracts, back to what do they actually want to give, what do they want to get back, what works kind of for them. Now, that is complicated, but it depends what kinds of results you're looking for. So, but I would say if there are some serious issues around, then... Yeah, I think it's important to deal with it. And the other thing I would say is it seems to me, in terms of initial diagnosis and evaluation, again, you've probably seen this, people might look at a well-being measure and say it's, I know, a seven-point scale averaged over 20 items, whatever it is. They'll say, look, it's really good. This thing really worked. We, we took people who were from 4.8 to 5.1 on a seven-point scale result. And I'm always thinking, but if they're already on 4.8, they're probably okay anyway on average and what you've done is taken a bunch of okay people and made them probably even in an unnoticeable way even slightly more okay and it comes back to this, this is what making me think about this again it's about tailoring it to specific individuals but to specific kind of issues and problems so a lot of this stuff seems to me again that your experience is it's often getting bunches of workers or employees are basically quite happy and tweaking something somewhere to make them slightly more happy. And I'm kind of keep thinking, but probably amongst that average of people who are really struggling, what about those people? Why aren't we focusing on those people rather than moving everyone up a little tiny bit? Anyway, kind of slightly yeah. random thoughts about that, but good question. Yeah, no, I think um, probably the, um, the the traditional tools that, that we've used to assess these types of things don't um, allow for that kind of nuanced um, analysis no. very well. No, I don't think they do. I don't think they do. And I think it's it's a tendency. And again, we have it in HR, we have it in public occupational health, we say I mean organizational psychology, where the default way of doing everything, including research, is a self-report Likert scale survey. Everything comes down to that. And in my view, you know, sometimes those things are okay, but most times I think not. But then it's quite difficult to think of the alternative. We're so used to generating data by using surveys. Again, even in the research, you know, if you, as you know, if you pick up an academic journal, it's the organizational psychology or work psychology, to find anything that isn't based on a Likert scale of some kind is really unusual. And you're thinking, but this is all about people's perception. Yes, sometimes that's important. Other times it isn't, not least around well-being, because when we intervene, we're trying to change the work environment. Uh, but the key question is how much the work environment is driving those perceptions. Again, there's you know, some evidence that suggests maybe not much. 
if people don't like their boss, it maybe doesn't matter what the boss does. Or if people say they've got high workload, maybe reducing it doesn't change the perception of high workload. So there's a real issue there about the, the match between what we're trying to do, which is to make workplaces safe or even flourishing for people, and actually the way we're trying to get data, back to your point, data and instruments that's supposed to tell us about what that workplace is like. We don't quite, we rarely get to that. I think we get something else, which is why I'm actually quite in favour of, Obviously, things like more qualitative methods, even ethnographic stuff that seems to me can often tell us much, much more about what's going on. Oh, Rob, we like you. You've probably spent the last five minutes summarising everything that we've found is wrong in the world when yeah. trying to assess okay. psychosocial <laughs> hazards. So, yeah, and uh, I'll have to share some solutions that we've got later with you um, and uh, get, get your thoughts on it. But, mm. um, okay, great. Yeah, yeah. So they're definitely the challenges that we're trying to overcome, you know, ourselves. Yeah, along with mm. the... Um, yeah, you you know, you can't really do ethnography ethnography at scale. <laughs> no, no. Um, so I guess how does diagnosis inform decisions about interventions? Then, and you might have already referred to it, but maybe um, to to summarise. Yeah. So I think uh, how does diagnosis inform decisions about interventions? Well, I think it it kind of tells you about I guess the scale of problem and if there is one and where it is and uh, what already, you, you know, you can get a lot of data by diagnosis about what might be causing it. And it may maybe to do with work, it may be nothing to do with work. You can even maybe get good diagnostic data about the effects of what it is you're finding. So if you find high scores in one environment, one context, does it link to absence? Is it linked to turnover? Is it linked to performance or not? And how much does it? So diagnosis potentially almost tells you not everything, but tells you a hell of a lot about what you need to know before deciding if you need an intervention, what that intervention might be and where it should be targeted. So in a sense, the diagnosis should pretty much drive, I think, the intervention because it tells you what it is you're trying to do, I guess, uh, and what would count as something being effective or working. And I think, again, this is another issue in not just this field, but many, is it's not it's often not clear what counts as something being effective. And you obviously need to decide before. And you can only decide before with good diagnostic data, I would say. So I think it just really drives, it kind of drives the whole thing. And more generally, not just in this area, but in lots of areas, I think whether it's kind of politics or HR or management, or all these fields, over the years, I've noticed that it's actually, I find it really hard to persuade people to do that work. I find it really, I, you know, I can't really do it. To persuade people it's worth doing that diagnosis. And I think there's lots of reasons for it. Um, I think one is often the data organisations have is not very good or it's not very well organised or it's impossible to understand or difficult to analyse. It's a big database is supposedly full of data and evidence, but it's kind of unusable. And I think a bit of it is around skills. People don't have the skills. And again, as I mentioned before, it's this tendency to want to do something. People don't see that diagnosis as a prerequisite, an important, crucial prerequisite for doing something. They just feel that doing something is the most important thing. But yeah, I think, it, I think it's kind of at the heart of this, what is going on? What is the problem? What is the issue? What is happening? It's the most important kind of question we don't ask. Yeah. Um, now, there's a really great quote that comes to mind. Um, oh, it's Abraham Lincoln and, and the axe. If you're going to chop down a tree and you've got an hour to do it or something like that, you spend half your time or 90% of the time sharpening the axe and 10% of the time 
cutting down yeah. a tree. Yeah. In the same way, you should spend most of your time on diagnosis because that will really make it very clear and tangible yeah. what the issue is and the intervention will be very apparent, you know. Yeah. And also there's, there's another famous non-Einstein quote. I only learned yeah. about the things attributed to Einstein. Yeah, yeah. But one of the alleged things he said was similar kind of thing. If you had 24 hours to save the world or something, you'd spend 23 hours trying to understand what the issue was yeah. and one hour intervening to save it. And it's this kind of ratio that we seem to have flipped on its head um or that that, that idea i think is it from carpentry you know measure twice yeah, twice cut once yeah, yeah. idea and, and it's what that's what i find at the moment where i'm with all this i really find it fascinating that people people kind of know this so it's not like an alien concept the idea you try and diagnose and understand before you do something but it just appears in many areas of organizational life in general People don't do that. And I find it really, really interesting about why that might be. Yeah, so tell us more, Rob. Why are all these companies virtue signaling? <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> we, we, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> well, my, I, I suspect they might not even know. My guess is if you, if you ask these companies why putting all these mental health things and, you, and they were able to speak candidly, I think they just say, well, we just, we just have to be seen to be doing something. You just have to. Oh, and, and that echoes the feedback that we've gotten from companies, particularly during the pandemic. They're like, okay, we know yeah. this is an issue and people are reporting this is an issue. Everyone yeah. else is doing this. We want to do exactly, something. Yeah. Just We don't have time to diagnose. We need to do something and just rush into a yeah. solution. Yeah. 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 So I don't think it's always virtue. How you get into that cycle of yeah. do stuff, don't evaluate, do some more stuff, don't evaluate. How do you get into that process? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. So we've had um, a number of guests who have um, made the point very succinctly that, you know, most wellbeing interventions don't have a strong evidence base behind mm. them. Um, so this is sort of the, the point that you were making that, you know, we'll, organizations will do an intervention and they don't yeah. evaluate to see if it actually had the effect that it wanted. And, you know, we had Don McCreary on um, who, you know, had been contracted to evaluate you know, which of these interventions is the most effective? And his answer was, well, none of them are effective, um, which wasn't quite what they were looking for. But um, nonetheless, that was that was uh, the, the conclusions. So in the absence of good evidence, you know, if organisations have done that diagnostic, yeah. how what approach should they take then in sort of deciding how to actually intervene once they've identified what, what the yeah. problem is so i think i think for me also it's about specificity and nuance uh, as i mentioned already so i think in the so before describing evidence-based practice where you identify a problem or potential problem or solution or, or, or opportunity and then the next stage is to do the same process to identify an intervention and i think part of identifying the intervention is saying is being specific what is the thing so i don't think you can intervene to improve well-being it's kind of meaningless uh, because well-being means lots and lots and lots of different things. So you you might say, I know these people, this group of people are reporting anxiety levels at this level, which having talked to them and looked at scientific, we believe is problematic for their health in some way or, or for safety, or whatever, whatever you think the consequence of this, this is, or it's just unethical. Uh, and where we know we've been causing that. So we believe that these this intervention is more likely to reduce anxiety levels to an acceptable to a particular level 
doing this intervention is more like to more likely to get that result than doing this intervention or doing nothing. And I think it's those kind of nuanced, specific claims it's important to start thinking about when it comes to interventions. Now, the problem is, from an evidence-based practice perspective, compared to other people who are offering solutions, you kind of sound ridiculous. You're saying, well, we think probably based on this, if you do that, it might lead to this out. Someone else is going, I have the solution. I have this is the answer. And you sound a bit, well, what's the answer? Do you have the answer or not? And you go, well, there isn't quite an answer. And, you know, sometimes people react really badly to that. They want the answer. So I think, it, it, yeah, it's about nuance and specificity. And I think in, I know, sometimes, you know, one analogy I like to use sometimes is if a, I know, if you've got a problem in your house, I know there's a damp patch. I'm actually looking at a damp patch right now, actually. Now, now I'm worried about the damp patch. But if you look at the damp patch and you say, I need to get a builder in to look at this. And the builder comes in, looks at it and goes, right, I think it's this. You need to get on the roof, do that, we're done. And they don't even really, they don't go up and roof and look at anything. Go, okay, well, this builder's got the answer. Another builder comes and goes, well, actually, looking at it, it could be this, it could be this, it could be that. I'll need to do this. I need to go outside and try and go on the roof. I can maybe put a prep, whatever it is builders do to try and find out what the problem is. Now, you could say, well, I want the builder who's got the solution. Or you could say, no, actually, this other builder who doesn't, isn't quite sure, but they've explained to me it could be a number of different. Actually, I trust them more because it looks like they want to try and really understand what's going on. And I think this analogy I sometimes unsuccessfully use with managers saying, you know, who would you actually trust more to do a good job in the end? You know? And I think it's sort of, to me, it's about, you know, shifting people a little bit from a modus operandi which says, here's lots of stuff, let's just do these things towards, yeah, can we kind of be a bit more like the builder who's asking, says he needs to investigate or she needs to investigate to find out what is going on? Can we shift it a bit more that way? So I think, it, and it's about that nuance. It could be this, it could be that, maybe that will work that. Now we've found out it's this problem, this should probably do it, but we'll have to check again later. So it's that, it's that kind of, uh, language and way of thinking about interventions, which again, I think our, our organisations, our businesses are not always used to that. They, they're used to, I know, quick fixes or easy things. Again, another analogy I quite like is, I know, things like diets or things like health advice, where they're constantly just do this one thing, eat this one thing, don't eat that one thing, try this pill. You know, these, you know, and actually, maybe the interventions boring and slow and won't be fast and won't but it's you know it's more likely to work and it's it's not fancy it's not clever but you know maybe for most of us eating less moving more will probably do it but you know what it might take 18 months might take two years and again that's what i mean by interventions as well is saying it's nuanced it's specific and it's really thinking about how long it might take those kind of ideas mm. Yeah, um, yeah, Rob, we have loved this discussion. I hope our listeners enjoy it as much as what we did. I mean, we're from the same field um, and you can never hear this stuff enough. Yeah. It takes me back to my master's degree in talking about organisational diagnosis. And mm. our, yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah. Yeah, really cool. Good. Yeah, so we're, we're happy to geek out with you, Rob. Maybe I'll, uh, I reckon, <laughs> okay. uh, hopefully um, our listeners are still tuning in at this point because I think you've uh, shared a lot of gold. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, listeners from the OHS side of things as well have um, sort of 
taken taken some um, yeah. some learnings away from there that you know it's not about just looking for you know what solutions have people got for sale um but actually yeah how how can we find someone who's going to help us do do a really good diagnosis yeah. and sort of understand what's happening and the other thing i would add is it is it can sound very evidence-based practice and doing the diagnosis can sound very time consuming and complicated i would add to that it doesn't have to be in other words, I would say even if you can only spend a couple of days on it, you are more likely to, to find out what the problems are and you're more likely to identify a solution than not doing it at all. And it's persuading people that even doing it a bit is going to help. So I think sometimes when people think about diagnosis and looking deep and think, oh, my God, it's going to take too long, it's going to be too difficult. But it doesn't have to. Even making a slightly more informed decision is preferable in terms of getting the outcome you want. And I think maybe we haven't always done a good job in, in making that clear to people. You don't have to make it really long and complicated. You can still do a better job. Yeah. That's yeah. that's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've rabbited on, on about that quite a bit on the podcast as well. If you're going to, you know, launch into all these interventions, you, you should be spending most of your time up the front understanding the issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's yeah. great that you are reaffirming to our listeners that Joel and Jason have been saying the right stuff. <laughs> According to Rob, anyway. According to Rob. According to me, exactly. We'll get, some, we'll, we'll get some more org sites that we've paid beforehand yeah. that will uh, back, back up our sessions. So, hey, Rob, it's uh, in case you haven't noticed, we've enjoyed having a chat with you today. Um, yeah, and, me, uh, me too. It's been great. Thank you very much. And I, I think you've articulated some of these issues really, really well. Um, but if we think back to this topic of, of mental health, one question that we ask all of our, um, our mm. guests is looking into the future, what would your hopes be for the future of workplace mental health? Hmm. I think, I mean, it's obviously going to be a very predictable answer, but, but I think my hope would be that people take it more seriously. And by that, I don't mean, oh, my God, it's a terrible problem. Everyone's kind of got depression. I don't mean seriously in that sense. I mean, seriously, as in, is this something that's important? If so, take it seriously. And by taking it seriously, it means trying to understand what seems to be going on. Treat it like a serious thing, not a trivial thing. You're just going to throw instant non-solutions at. Uh, I would, that would be my hope, to treat it as something serious, because in the end, at least for some people, it is about their mental health, it is about social, psychological well-being, and there is an ethical thing here. Is it ethical to vaguely believe there's a problem, not try and understand the problem, just throw sort of things that don't work at it? Of course it isn't. So when it comes to mental health, there's an ethical angle there as well, and that hopefully persuades people a little bit more that it is something worth taking seriously. Yeah, and right on the topic for today as well. So Very much so. Well, well done, Rob. <laughs> and I think I can probably predict uh, your response to this last question that we ask everybody okay. as well. Um, parting words of advice for professionals who want to work to improve um, psychological health and safety. I would say, so whether it's a professional thing in an organisation or a consultant, I would say, this is maybe not quite what you thought I was going to say, I would say, think about what kind of practitioner or professional you want to be. Do you want to do what's important for the business, the organization, for employees, for individuals? Do you want what's important? And do you want to do stuff that's more likely to be effective? Is that the kind of professional you want to be? And if it is, then you need more informed decision-making. You need something like evidence-based practice. That's a decision. It's hard to make, but one we can start to think about 
yeah, how do we want to practice? That's the key thing. Not quite exactly what I was imagining, but um, related, I would say. Yeah. You'll take it. <laughs> yeah. um, hey, Rob, that brings us to, to the end of the, uh, the conversation today. Is there any resources or anything that you'd point our listeners to? Sure, there is. So if you go on the Centre for Evidence-Based Management website, I'll give you, I'll send you some links so you can add them to the, the podcast notes. But the Centre for Evidence-Based Management is a good resource for lots of things to do with evidence-based practice, including organisational psychology, HR, and some, st some stuff there about wellbeing as well. Uh, there's also specifically, and again, I'll send you the link, the link, some stuff specifically about psychosocial hazards and some stuff I wrote a while ago. It might be quite interesting, maybe for people to look at it now, about some questions we raised about how well the kind of physical hazards model applies to psychosocial hazards so what are its you know how can it be used but what are its limitations so they're the two main yeah they're the two main resources i think yeah yeah terrific um well thanks a lot rob for today um yeah we hope to keep You're in welcome. touch because um you know it's great to finally connect with you after seeing and and uh being in admirer of a lot of your commentary on linkedin that we definitely buy into so thank you so much for joining us today you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Okay, listeners, that brings us to the end. So just remember that we do videos of these things when we have the conversations with our guests. So you can catch that on the Flourish CX YouTube page. Uh, we'll also take some of the best clips from today. And there were a few doozies that we'll put on the Flourish CX LinkedIn page if you want to see some of the short clips. Uh, while you're on LinkedIn, Joel and I frequent there pretty uh, frequently. And uh, so does Rob. <laughs> so I'm sure that we'll all um, be happy to continue the conversation if you want to slide into our DMs and do that. Um, but thanks a lot, listeners. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.